0: Hello there, this is Geoffrey Wyatt, one of the team here at Sydney Observatory, which is part of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. I'm going to talk to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of March. Did you know that March, or Martius, used to be the first month of the year according to the old Roman calendar, as formulated by Romulus around 753 BCE? The year had 10 months and ended with December which makes sense, doesn't it? January and February were added later. After Julius Caesar's calendar reform in 45 BCE, it slipped down a couple of notches to month number three, then made a brief comeback in many places as the start of the year, but after acceptance of the Gregorian reform, went back to number three. March. Named in honour of the Roman god of war, the planet Mars. We're going to start our tour of the night sky by looking west shortly after sunset. When I say shortly after sunset, you do need some time for it to get dark. You might wait 20 to 30 minutes or up to an hour. But look where the sun went down and that will be west. What you need are some supplies to make this tour a little easier to follow. First and foremost, you'll need a map of the night sky which you can get from our website or you can purchase the book The Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Long. You'll need a few other things to keep yourself happy and comfortable as well. Perhaps a blanket to sit on, a pillow, a torch and something to drink. Perhaps a nice coffee, tea or even a glass of Milo. Or perhaps a glass of wine if you are old enough. Most of all, you will need imagination. The more imagination you have when it comes to joining the dots and looking for these mythical creatures, the easier it will be to find your way around. The sun has gone down, we've waited a little while, it's dark, and let's begin. But before we do that, we need something else, and that is a regular way of finding our position. We can do it a couple of different ways. Astronomers use terms called right ascension and declination, which are simply celestial equivalents of longitude and latitude. But they're a bit tricky, so we're going to use a simpler version, azimuth and altitude. Azimuth is simply a degree measured in an easterly direction from north, and altitude is the degree measured from the horizon. So if you're looking toward the western horizon, you're looking at an azimuth of 270 degrees east of north, and if you're looking on the horizon, the altitude is zero degrees. East has an azimuth of 90, south an azimuth of 180, west, as we've just discussed, 270 degrees, and north is either zero or 360 degrees. We don't mind which one you use. A good thing to remember is, for altitude, you've actually got a built-in rule. If you hold out your hand at arm's length, then stretch out a pinky, regardless of your age or size, it measures 1 degree, which is twice the size of the full moon. If you make a clenched fist at arm's length, that's roughly 10 degrees. And if you spread out your hand To make a hand span from pinky tip to the tip of your thumb, that's roughly 20 degrees. We should be looking at an azimuth of 270 degrees to start, and we're looking into the setting constellation of Taurus the Bull, which is perhaps the oldest of all constellations. It'll be a little hard to see because it's getting close to the horizon, but you're looking for a V-shaped group of stars that represents the head of Taurus the Bull. We think it may date back around 6,000 years. And for around 2,000 years, it was home to a very important point, or indeed the starting position in the sky, known as the vernal equinox. But not anymore. Things change, ever so slightly, day by day, for some objects, year by year, for others. The vernal equinox. What does that mean? In Latin, ver means spring, and equinox comes from equinoctium, meaning equal night. So, on the vernal equinox, when the sun is rising due east and setting due west, you have roughly equal night and equal day. It's never exactly the same, and I wonder if you can think why. If I tell you that we see the sun as a disk, not as a point source, does that help? in the morning as soon as you see the top limb of the sun peak above the horizon it's daytime until the very last point at which it sets so there's always going to be a little more daylight than night on the equinoxes so what does the vernal equinox actually signify and why is it so important from an observational point of view the sun traveling along its path called the ecliptic simply crosses the celestial equator from the Southern Hemisphere back into the Northern. For those in the Northern Hemisphere, the days will now grow longer than the night, and this became the marker for the start of spring and therefore new life. Astronomers worked out from many years of observation that the vernal equinox was occurring in the part of the sky called Taurus. They decided to mark the beginning of spring, the start of new life, as the start of the year. And that's why, until relatively recently for some countries, the year used to begin on the 1st of March. But no longer. To give you an idea just how important this part of the sky was, ancient Persian astronomers used to assign letters to the constellations. Guess which letter the constellation Taurus the Bull used to get. Hmm? Figured it out yet? Of course. The letter A. The next constellation along, Gemini, got B, and so on. Clearly, this was a very important part of the sky. Just for a moment, consider this. Have you ever played a game of whispers, where you pass a story from one person to another, then to another, and so on? People often make mistakes or deliberate changes, and ultimately the story is very different to how it began. Now consider passing a story from one generation to the next, and you can imagine what might happen. Well, that's exactly what's happened to stories about the sky. These days we have many versions floating around about Taurus, and indeed all of the constellations that I'll mention today. You have to remember that there is no absolute unless you're talking about the modern, well-defined, documented, recent constellations. For something as old as Taurus, there are many different versions. The one I will share revolves around the king of the Greek gods, Zeus. Zeus could change his form into whatever he wanted. He was, after all, king of the gods. At one particular time, he changed form into that of a white bull. Why? He was rather fond of King Agenor's daughter, Europa. He used to mind a herd of cattle. As a beautiful bull, Zeus mingled with the herd and somehow convinced Europa to climb upon his back, at which point he carried her off over the waves to the island of Crete. This became such a famous story that the landmass that we now refer to as Europe took her name. Europa, Europe. When you're looking at Taurus and this V-shaped group of stars that I've mentioned, look for one slightly reddish looking star called Aldebaran, which is the first of four royal or guardian stars. This is a very old idea dating back to Mesopotamia thousands of years ago. The astronomers of the time noted that four stars were close to seasonal markers in the sky, the equinoxes and the solstices. Aldebaran, the fourteenth brightest star in the night sky, was the closest bright star near the point of the vernal equinox. Its old Arabic name means the follower, probably because it's following a nearby group of stars called the Pleiades. Aldebaran is about 65 light years away, and a light year is the distance that light travels in the vacuum of space in one year. Light travels enormously quickly, at around 300,000 kilometres every second. So, multiply that number by the number of seconds in a year, and you end up with a lot of kilometres, around 10 trillion in fact. It might seem strange, but it's not a measure of time, it's a measure of distance. The distance that light can travel in one year. With Aldebaran 65 light-years away, you're seeing it now as it was 65 years ago. In fact, you're looking back in time. I think that's a rather cool idea. Aldebaran is about 650 million years old, so it's not very old in terms of stars, and it's about 1.7 times the size of the sun. I've mentioned now that it's at the head of a V-shaped group of stars. Unfortunately, it has nothing to actually do with that V-shaped group of stars. It's just between us and the group called the Hyades. They are the nearest open cluster to us at about 150 light-years away. These stars are, well, babies still in their stellar nursery. If we leave our Debaran, that lovely reddish-orange star, Oh, by the way, when I say red, I don't mean traffic light red. It's not that at all. It's more of a golden-orange colour. There are very, very few stars, and none that I'm aware of, that are, if you like, ruby red to the naked eye. There is one very close to the Southern Cross, but you'll have to wait until I do the June podcast to hear about ruby Crucis. What we're going to do is leave our Debaran and head roughly 20 degrees up. Who? 20 degrees? Oh, that's right, one hand span at arm's length. So, head 20 degrees up and look for another slightly reddish-orange star. This is the ninth brightest star in the night sky, and it's called Alpha Orionis. But not many people know it by that name, because it has a spectacular common name, and that is Betelgeuse. Yes, that's right, there is a star called Betelgeuse. Some people pronounce it as Betelgeuse or Betelgees, but they're all mispronunciations of an old Arabic name, Yad al-Yaza, meaning the hand of the big man. Or as we now call it, Orion's brightest star, Betelgeuse. This particular star is quite big. It's about a thousand times the diameter of the sun. It's roughly 660 light-years away, making it about 10 times further away than the star we've just mentioned, which is Aldebaran. It's about 10 to 20 times the mass of the Sun, which makes it a pretty big star. A big star like this, which is only 10 million years old, is already dying and quite shortly, we don't know when, it should die a rather spectacular death as a supernova. In fact, a Type 2 supernova. But please don't worry. It can't do anything to us. It's 660 light-years away. That's an enormous distance. Nonetheless, we're very excited by this, and I really hope that it does explode. Well, can I be selfish and say, my lifetime? Because since the invention of the telescope, we've not actually had a star explode in our galaxy that we can easily see. We see them explode in other galaxies all the time, they go off regularly, but we haven't seen one explode in our galaxy since Tycho's star in 1572, before the invention of the telescope. So, when this star does blow up, soon, who knows, could be tomorrow, it could be in a thousand years, it could be in a million years, we just don't know. Nothing to worry about. But temporarily, this star will outshine all the other stars in the galaxy combined. That's a sight worthy of seeing. But of course, let me state again, nothing to worry about. Betelgeuse is the brightest star in the constellation of Orion. A constellation was a picture in the sky, but now they are areas with carefully drawn borders, and I like to think of them like suburbs. Just as we use suburbs to give us a general idea of location, so do constellations, but for the sky. If you look at your map, and with a little imagination, or perhaps a lot, you might just be able to make out a stick figure of a hunter. You can see that he has shoulders, he's got a belt across his waist, he's got stars for the knees, and he's holding a shield out the front and a club above his head. However, you need imagination. If you expect to see one of these fabulously detailed drawings that we see on old star maps, forget it! It's not going to happen for any of the constellations. At best, it's going to be a very simple stick figure, and I think for some, it's nearly impossible. Perhaps you can even join the dots and make up your own star pictures. Orion? Well, again, there are lots of stories about him, and they may have a common origin. We just don't know any more. One of the Greek stories I like is that Orion was a mighty hunter who became a good friend of the goddess of the hunt, Artemis. Her brother, Apollo, was not very keen on this relationship and tricked Artemis into shooting that a speck in the ocean with her bow and arrow as a test of her skill. As it turned out, It was, of course, Orion swimming to safety to escape a giant scorpion that Apollo created to kill him. When she discovered what she had done, she was mortified and placed his body in the sky as the stars that we see now. Orion is one of the first objects that people with a small telescope or a pair of binoculars should look at. What I want you to do is try and locate an object called M42. It's a very famous object to look at. M. simply tells us that this was part of a catalogue of objects devised by a Frenchman in 1771. His name was Charles Messier. He made up a list of 40-odd objects not to look at if you're expecting to find a comet. So a list of fuzzy objects that you don't waste your time looking at. They're never going to develop a tail and look as spectacular as Comet Halley. The list has now been expanded to a total of 110 objects, but the 42nd one, I think, is one of the first ones that people look at with binoculars or a telescope. To find it, it's relatively easy. Look for the orange-reddish star of Betelgeuse, and then, for us in the southern hemisphere, go up a little bit, you'll see three stars in a row that form a lovely straight line, a nice equidistant straight line to Australians, South Africans, and our cousins across the ditch in New Zealand, we typically call this group of stars, starting with those three in a straight line, the saucepan. Yeah, not quite as romantic as a mighty hunter, but there you have it, the saucepan. The three stars that I've just mentioned are the base of the saucepan. What I want you to do is go up one side and you'll see another three stars off at roughly 45 degrees, That make up the handle of the saucepan. Concentrate on the middle star of that group of three. It's not a single point of light, but you will need binoculars or a small telescope. And if you can do that, what you're looking at, as I've mentioned, the 42nd object in Messier's catalogue is called the Great Nebula in Orion. This is a cloud of gas and dust that's about 1300 light years away. It's 24 light-years from side to side. 24 light-years across? That's enormously big, and it's roughly 2,000 times the mass of the Sun. You're not looking at the nursery of stars that I mentioned earlier, but rather the maternity ward. When we look into this middle star-like object, we see a little part of this cloud glowing as the result Of baby stars just switching on. You can actually see some of them with a small telescope and we call them the trapezium. They're lighting up and in fact stripping away the rest of the nearby cloud. So when you see these brand new stars just switching on it's a beautiful object to look at. But there is a trick and the trick is that you want a moonless night and preferably a night away from the bright lights which is, unfortunately, most of the city. From the constellation of Orion, what I want you to do now is go a little bit higher and look for the brightest star in the night sky. There's no missing it. It's pretty high. It's bright. It's called Sirius the Dog Star. It's about 8.6 light years away, so it's relatively close. It's twice the mass of the sun, and again, actually quite young, at roughly 300 million years old. It has a companion snuggled up against it, but you need a very big telescope for that, so don't worry about trying to see it at the moment. This is, as I've mentioned, the brightest star in the night sky, so you'll find stories about it all over the world. Locally, unfortunately, we don't have any of these stories at the moment from the Sydney region. However, in 1857, William Edward Stanbridge, a wealthy English pastoralist and philanthropist, recorded stories from the Burong, part of the Wurgaya language group that inhabited the region of Lake Tyrol in northwestern Victoria. The Burong looked at this star, which we call Sirius, and they called it Warrapil, a male eagle, and he was, in fact, an elder of the Narambhangatiyas. The Narambhangatiyas were the old spirits that once inhabited the land but went back to the heavens before the first people arrived. Do you know that the indigenous peoples of Australia have been looking at the stars and telling stories and passing them from one generation to the next longer than any other culture on the planet? How privileged are we therefore to be now taught and share this and other indigenous stories. It makes me very proud to be an Australian. The stars are often used for calendrical purposes also. I think one of the best uses comes to us from the ancient Egyptians, perhaps as long as 5,000 years ago. They used to watch Sirius, The Dog Star, The Brightest Star in the Night Sky, and take careful note of it getting closer and closer to the sun as the Sun would set, until finally Sirius was lost in the glare of the Sun for about 70 days. they then get up early and start looking for it, rising just ahead of the Sun in the east. The first day that they could see it, coming up ahead of the Sun, is an event called Heliacal Rise. The Egyptians did this year after year after year, And they worked out that on average it would return to the same position every 365 and a quarter days. They didn't actually have the concept of a decimal place, so it wasn't as though they said 365.25, but they worked out 365 and a quarter days averaged to 365 days for three years and then 366 for the fourth. Apparently, they didn't actually make use of this for one of their main calendars because they had several, and it wasn't until it was imposed upon them by Augustus Caesar that they started using it. Take a moment to look at the calendar on your wall. It rules everything we do birthdays, anniversaries, public holidays hey let's face it, who doesn't like those? Paydays and other special events. It took nearly two thousand years to improve on the observations of the Egyptians to get the length of the year correct by an additional, wait for it, 0.002%, which is roughly 11 minutes. I take my hat off to the ancient Egyptians and their observations of the dog star Sirius. Oh, Sirius. Let me think. Ah, but of course, I've heard that name elsewhere, and hopefully so have you. It was one of the ships that came to Australia as part of the First Fleet. And I do believe in more recent times it featured as a character in a series of novels about a young wizard boy. I'll leave that to perhaps your children or grandchildren to tell you who that was. Once we've finished with Sirius... Oh, and by the way, you should be able to make out a simple stick figure of a dog in this region, but you will need Dr Nick's book or a map. What I want you to do is head to an azimuth of zero degrees. So remember what we said before? That means we're now looking due north at about 25 degrees altitude. So that's one handspan and roughly half a clenched fist above the northern horizon. And what you're going to look for is a zodiac constellation. Zodiac. Have I mentioned that before? Zodiac is simply the name that we give to the path or circle of animals, the constellations through which the sun, the moon, and the planets move. All of the zodiac constellations bar one are animals. Think about it. Which of the zodiac is not a living animal? We can't see it at this time of year, but again, if you wait until the June podcast, I'll tell you the answer to that one. We're looking due north, and we're looking for two relatively bright stars in this particular constellation, and they are Castor and Pox. They are brothers who went with Jason in search of the Golden Fleece. Several constellations relate to this, indicating its importance in years gone by. We're going to skip Gemini because there's, well, not a lot to it. With a bit of imagination, and I know I stress this, you might just be able to see two stick figures of people that look like they're holding hands, and that's Gemini. The next constellation along, however, oh my goodness, it is the hardest of all the zodiacs to see. So we're going to slip right past it. And I use that word deliberately, and I'll get back to that in just a moment. Several thousand years ago, but not now, because of the 26,000 year wobble known as the precession of the equinoxes, the northern hemisphere's summer solstice used to be in this part of the sky. The word solstice comes from two Latin words, sol, meaning the sun, and sistere, to stand still. The sun does not actually stand still, it just stops moving north, just like a ball at the top of its flight stops moving up ever so briefly before falling back to Earth. So, the sun stops its seasonal northward movement as we see it because of our yearly orbit and starts to head back toward the south. Without any north-south movement in declination, the sun appears to slip sideways. Which animal is famous for walking sideways? Uh Aha I hear you say, the crab. That's right. We're looking into the Zodiac constellation of Cancer the Crab. The sad thing about Cancer is there's nothing bright there to look at. That's why the second of our seasonal markers, the Royal or Guardian stars, is just a little bit to your right in the next constellation, not in poor old empty Cancer. So, continue to your right to an azimuth of about 60 degrees, so roughly in the northeast, and about 30 degrees above the horizon in altitude. So that's one handspan and one clenched fist above the horizon. And you're looking for a single bright star. This bright star is roughly 79 light years away. It's four times the mass of the Sun and about three times the diameter of the Sun. So it's a pretty big star. It's only the 22nd brightest star in the night sky, but it's the closest bright star to that summer solstice as seen from the northern hemisphere several thousand years ago so it's the second of our royal stars and the star you're looking at is regulus in the constellation of leo the lion here's a challenge for you scan this part of the sky and look for an upside down question mark if you can see that you're well on your way to seeing the head and the fiery mane of leo the lion Again, in the Southern Hemisphere, for us, it's upside down, so it's a little tricky to see, but with some imagination and patience, you should be able to see a majestic cat in the sky, sitting there with its legs out in front and tail out to the back. Poor old Leo. He did not have a nice time, however, because he was killed by Hercules in the first of his twelve labours. Near the stars Theta and Iota Leonis. Look, there's no nice way of saying this. We're actually talking about the stars near his private bits. If you look at the map and have a good pair of binoculars, away from bright lights, scan this area, and you might just see two fuzzy smudges that won't become commons. That's right. They're more Messier objects. We're looking at Messier 65 and Messier 66. They're about 35 million light years away, but you will need a good pair of binoculars or a small telescope. More importantly, I think you'll also need to put them onto a tripod or wedge them up against a tree or something to keep them nice and still. From this part of the sky, which is Leo, I want you to continue around to an azimuth of about 90 degrees. So we're looking towards the east, and what I want you to find is the constellation of Shoppingus Trollius. Say what? Yes, of course, there's no such constellation. I made it up. Guilty as charged. What you're looking at, to me, looks like a shopping trolley. However, it is supposed to be Corvus the Crow that used to have the ability to talk to people. It was, however, a bit lazy. And after one particular epic fail, the god Apollo banished Corvus along with Crater the Cup and Hydra the Snake into the sky. So you'll see these constellations in the east at the moment. Just slightly higher than Corvus, you should be able to see the bright star Alfard, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Hydra the Snake. Alfard is an Arabic name which means solitary one because there's nothing else nearby that's bright to look at. So look for a solitary bright star and you've probably found Alphard in the constellation of Hydra. Moving on from this part of the sky, I want you to go around to an azimuth of about 150 degrees and an altitude of 25 degrees. Look, it's a bit low and it's not a good time of year to sit. But what you're looking at is the third brightest star in the night sky, called Alpha Centauri. Climb a little bit higher up from Alpha Centauri to about 30 degrees, and you might be able to see the smallest of all 88 constellations. It is the Southern Cross. That's not its official name, by the way. Its official name is simply Crux, which is Latin for Cross. To our friends over in New Zealand, it is known as Tapunga, which means the anchor. The Southern Cross is so famous, it's actually on five different national flags. It's on many other province and island flags, but the five national flags, Australia, New Zealand, Samoa, Papua New Guinea, and Brazil. But there's a bit of a trick to finding it on the Brazilian flag because there are so many other stars. There are also... Back to front, because they're seen from outside the celestial sphere, in the realm of God, from the outside, looking in. Go up a little bit higher from the Southern Cross, you'll actually see a group of stars at about 60 degrees above the horizon that confuses people, especially over summer. And even now, as we're moving into March, this particular group of stars looks like a cross and is frequently called the False Cross. It's not actually a constellation. It's an asterism, which means it's a group of stars that make up a picture that's not officially a constellation. This picture is made up of stars from the constellations Carina the Keel and Vela the Sails, which used to be part of a much larger constellation, one of the original 48, as described by Claudius Ptolemaeus, and that is Argo Navas, but not any longer. That constellation was deemed to be too big and was broken up into smaller constellations. From the false cross, you should be able to see, quite close by, another very bright star. This star is not quite as bright as Sirius that we looked at earlier, as it is the second brightest star in the night sky, and it's called Canopus. Again, to the Aboriginal people of the Lake Tyrrell area, the Burong of the Wurgai language group, this star is called Wa. It's written as W-A-A, and it's to suggest the noise made by Crow. Wa is the brother of Warripil, and he too is an elder of the Naramangatias. Quite close by, and also in the constellation of Karina, you'll be able to find the fairly faint star called Eta Karina, which is a rather remarkable region of the sky and one that you should look at if you've got a pair of binoculars or a small telescope. Ooh, by the way, to the Buron, the name for Ita Carinae, Wa, which means the wife of Wa. This whole area is rather spectacular and I can't urge you strongly enough to get out a pair of binoculars or a small telescope and simply scan the region. At the heart of the Eta Carina Nebula is a cataclysmic variable star. In other words, it's a star that's changing its brightness in the very final stages of its death. It's already shed a great deal of material which is now partially obscuring the star. The last time it did anything significant was in 1843, when it went from being a fairly inconspicuous background star to the second brightest star in the night sky. And then it faded over about a 10-year period. During this time it came to the notice of the Buron clan and that's why they named this star Collegoric Wa, as we've already mentioned, the wife of Wa. Our last stop on our tour for the moment is toward the west to an azimuth of about 220 degrees and an altitude of just 20. The star you are hunting is Achenar, in the constellation of Eridanus the River. It's about 140 light-years away, seven times the mass of the Sun, but 3,000 times brighter. It may be a little hard to see, because it is relatively low. So why am I bothering with it? Well, I think it's cool. This star spins so fast, it is the least spherical star in the Milky Way. Its equatorial diameter, its bulge around the middle, is 56% greater than its diameter around the top and the bottom, or if you like, its polar diameter. We're almost back to our starting position, to an azimuth of 270 degrees, but at this stage, Taurus will have completely set. Highlights for March 2017. First quarter moon is on Sunday the 5th at 10.32pm. The moon will be full on Monday the 13th at 1.54am. Last quarter is Tuesday the 21st at 2.58am, and the new moon is on Tuesday the 28th at 1.57pm. The autumn equinox is on Monday the 20th at 9.29pm. One of the nicest vistas for the month will be on March the 1st, looking west shortly after sunset. The constellation of Pisces will host Venus, which is very bright, but it sets at 8.28pm, less than an hour after the Sun. Mars, which is not too bright, and the young crescent moon, about 9%. By the second, the moon will have moved from below and to the left of Mars, to above and to the right. Holy Mars is visible all month in the evening sky, but don't get too excited as it's rather dim, being on the opposite side of the sun to us at around 310 million kilometres away. It starts the month very low in Pisces before moving into Aries by the end of the first week. It's dim and small, even through a big telescope, but don't worry, because next year in July... Mars will be at its closest since 2003 and for the next 15 years or so. Make sure you plan a visit to Sydney Observatory if you can and enjoy the view of our red neighbour in July 2018. As mentioned, Venus will disappear from the western twilight sky by the end of the second week. Jove or Jupiter, king of the Roman gods, will start the month rising in the east about an hour after sunset, and by the end of the month by an hour and twenty minutes. It will be in Virgo, close to its brightest star, Spica. The waxing gibbous moon will be to the left or north of Jupiter, and Spica on the 14th, all rising around 8.30pm. For those up early... Venus will become the morning star in the last week, though it will rise only about 30 minutes ahead of the Sun, and therefore be hard to see. The jewel of the night sky, Saturn, will be in Sagittarius all month, rising at about 1am on the 1st, and by 11pm by the end of the month, so it's a few more months away from being visible in our night tours. Don't forget that you can download this podcast via our website or free via iTunes. You can also purchase the book, The Australasian Sky Guide by Dr. Nick Lom, which has the full year's details in it. You can get more information by visiting our website, www.maz.museum, and follow the links to Sydney Observatory. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Obs. My name is Geoffrey Wyatt, part of the team at Sydney Observatory, which is part of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast for March 2017.